you know, I was walking across Hammersmith Bridge and I, I used to give myself paper cuts between my toes and fill my shoes with lemon juice and salt so that I can in some way elevate myself mm. up to this point of incredible pain that I could feel as an equal with those people who would walk around me because I felt so detached from that. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm very excited today. We've got Henry Johnston. We only met recently, but we vibed immediately. I feel like we connected on so many levels, right? Around addiction. I want to say masculinity, even though I'm not a man, but we talked about that topic because I work a lot in, in sort of male dominated industries. And mostly Henry is a coach who is changing the world one powerful conversation at a time. Welcome to the show, Henry. Hello, Petra. It is a pleasure. It's so exciting to have you. So, so give give our listeners just a little bit of context. Uh, what are you passionate about at the moment? What is it that you do? What am I passionate about? Being of service, giving value. It's a it's a thing that's said a lot in the self development industry. But honest to God, it's the only thing that makes me feel like my life is of purpose. You know, and I, I live in London at the moment with my beautiful partner, my two beautiful dogs. Um, I'm coaching men and women. I'm creating powerful conversations and helping people challenge what they think they're capable of. Like everyone is more powerful than they could ever possibly imagine. And that's where I come in to help them see that. Isn't it fascinating what, sim- like, it sounds simple, right? How to have a powerful conversation. Like, how would you, what, what, is, what does that mean? So people who aren't in the self-development industry, what does a powerful conversation mean? Powerful conversation hinges, maybe, or maybe not, I don't care. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) A powerful conversation hinges around one central theme, is that you become real. Because by and large, as we live life, we are not real with people. So no one sees the real us. So if we don't show that our real selves, how can we do what we were born to do? That's what a powerful conversation is. It brings you in, you get real, you get vulnerable. I encourage all my clients to get vulnerable. And if they don't, I can pick out places where they're being it, but they don't know they are. Mm. And this aha moment, they're like, oh shit, that's how I feel. It's like, that's how you feel. What are you going to do about that? You know, so kind of holding a mirror up to them a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Like we, we are our most powerful tool but we need to be able to see ourselves and speak with the voice which we haven't been allowing ourselves to speak. And only then can we create goals and actions around that. And um, probably about 10 years ago, I would have found this conversation and what you said, no offense to you, because I totally get it now, like uh, totally fluffy, a little bit wanky, a little bit like, oh, those people, they just talk stuff. And, you know, um, and I had never really experienced what the hell that meant. So I want to nod to those people who might be listening. Absolutely. Oh my God. I'm there <laughs> you, were, you. you were one of them, right? Like a fucking wank. <laughs> of that. 
You know? <laughs> um, but but what the thing is, when you experience it, and I know we both have had um, on our on our own journeys, um, it like the reality of just being real, as you said, being vulnerable, being straight up, no more masks, no more hiding behind the what ifs and will people judge me and any of that just allows you to step into this powerful, successful, whatever that means to you person. And, and the bit that I value the most of it, regardless of success or, or even fulfillment, is the deep personal connections I now have. So like the friendships, I feel seen, I feel like deeply connected. Um, it's powerful, so powerful. It's, until you experience it, it's very easy to brush off as kind of slightly woo. Yeah. Or fluffy but when you do experience it it is transformative and the thing about it is that it's transformative every single time it's never a, a shallow layer of connection it's always my god i've allowed myself to be seen by myself and now by proxy other people are seeing me i don't have to pretend anymore i don't feel sad anymore i don't feel pressured anymore i don't feel jealous it's like ah oh. what a relief right and then it becomes like the new normal and then you start surrounding yourself with people who get it and who are like that. And then sometimes I talk like this to, to, to people who don't and I'm and not when I'm working. And I get surprised that they don't understand every aspect of what I'm saying. I'm like, oh, right. It's taken me 10 years of like re-brainwashing myself. Anyway, yeah. um, I obviously love this topic. I love this topic and I love the journey uh, that, that you've been on. So I want to go right back for a second. Give us a little bit of context to Henry as a young man, as a boy. Um, do you think that maybe your parents and the education system kind of set you up for life in the real world, built your resilience up and, and gave you what you needed? I think they used all the tools that they had available and they used the tools which they thought would work because they had worked with my eldest brother and my middle brother. They had no reason to think that it wouldn't work. So the answer to that is no, but by no fault of their own. You know, sure. the, the Philip Larkin poem of like parents don't mean to fuck you up, but they do like very, very apt for for my journey. Like I was a beautiful little boy. You know, I was really kind. I was really, really sweet. I was so sensitive. And like I was a little kid who would uh, get up and pick flowers for my mum and then walk everyone's house. Say, can I walk your dog? Like I, I still have this kind of pathological need to be helpful and to be loving, which was very much there when I was a child, but all that sensitivity, and I was severely dyslexic, which wasn't kind of really diagnosed properly around that time, and ADHD, and this kind of brief manifesting mental illnesses. Like I had my first deep episode of depersonalization when I was 11. Really, which, that's young. Yeah, like, mm. and it's terrifying for me. Like, and I still have these episodes now, but I'm far better at dealing with them. But when it when they happen, and no one knows what they are, and I've just you just got this screaming child who says he doesn't know who he is, doesn't know who my mum is, you know, just screaming and rocking backwards and forwards. Like, what were they the thing? It was completely out out of their sphere of of, of experience. So I very quickly became the boy who they loved, but they didn't know what to do with. What did that feel like growing up? Um. What did it feel like? It felt like I was a problem. Mm. You know, it felt like I couldn't quite get, I couldn't make them proud. Like I really wanted them to, to feel proud about me. I felt quite lost, felt quite sad, felt like it didn't fit in. You know, all I wanted to do was just make mum and dad happy. All I wanted to do was have a nice circle of people that I, that I fit in with. But I always felt like the sore thumb. I always felt forever kind of, changed by that experience 
and the way that they were with me. So I had this kind of level of self-awareness, which didn't allow me to be childish and, and innocent because I'd seen something which was monstrous on the other side. And it's like you didn't have the language at that stage to express what was actually going on for you. Did, did you get, out, do you remember outside support already, sort of through, I don't know, school counselor or psychologist or ADHD special, I don't know, someone? There was none of that when I was growing up. We had a uh, educational psycho- psychologist diagnose me for dyslexia. So they knew that, you know, there was something like I couldn't write my name until, until I was like eight. You know, it was, it was quite severe. So, and also people kind of know that about a kid as well. Like, oh, there's that kid who can't write his name. And, and I was an odd, an odd little boy. And I, and I hid that for a long time, but man, I'm fucking proud of that shit now. Cause right. I, I am very odd, bit of a weirdo, <laughs> but, but it's great. And I it's, love it's, that about myself. Yeah. So, so you, when you get to um, be your true self and embrace your uniqueness and realize that that's your part of your purpose and your value in the world, it's, it's totally liberating. Um, do you think there was conditioning uh, for you as a young boy, so a male, um, as far as, you know, um, get on with it, show no weakness, don't ask for help, any of that sort of thing growing up? Yeah, it didn't come from my parents. It came from like the, the wider media context that I absorbed, like uh, James Bond. I grew up watching a lot of James Bond and James Bond doesn't cry. He just plows on. If he gets injured, he just plows on. He also treats women horrifically, which I did try. But it that never, <laughs> I was like, why does this feel so wrong? <laughs> um, but that was like my, and there was obviously the, the cartoons like, like He-Man and uh, Action Man, everything I had was very Action Man based. And I'm not saying like those are, those are inherently bad. No. Because a lot of people see them and they don't like feel in prison, but I took it on board differently. You know, I developed like very early on that there was this ideal state of being a man growing up that he should take on everything and be able to hold it he should be like a warrior unto himself and he should never ask for help and that and i'll I'll get onto that i'll tell you how that kind of warped the incredibly unhealthy for me and how it manifested later on in life but there were definitely some seeds of that kind of thinking just through society, expectations, James Bond, you know, role models, um, and, yeah. and the way th- the, the expectations are. I mean, still, like, um, going to a toy shop. I have a boy and a girl, so I have two kids. Um, and just interesting to see society's effect even now uh, and the part that we can play as, as parents to um, kind of change the narrative somewhat. Uh, yeah. But it's still, it's still tricky. There's so many expectations for men. Um, so when we talk about this theme of adversity, so, so challenges, and I'm just curious about, you know, how they showed up in your life and, you know, do you identify with terms that, that kind of might lead to rock bottom moments or, or anything like that? What comes up for you? Um, I do identify with terms like rock bottom. I think rock bottoms are definitely a thing and, uh, a rock bottom is, is merely the place that you are before it gets better because that's the ultimate place where you end up. And people can say you have lots of rock bottoms. That's, that's not sure. sure. Yeah. Is that what you're asking? Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I totally identify with that. And sometimes you think it's the rock bottom and then you're like, Oh shit, there's another level to this. Right. (laughs) Um, I probably can identify two very clear ones, uh, that, that started me on the path to, uh, recovery and, you know, out of a desperation, like being close to death or putting my kids in danger or things like that, that, um, just made me go, huh, 
do I want to keep doing this? Like, where's, you know, that kind of enlightened moment. Um, and so I know that we connect on just the theme of, of addiction and, and that showed up in both of our lives in some way. Um, do you think that when challenges started showing up for you, so obviously from a young age, they started showing up. Do you think that um, challenges that showed up, I don't know, when you were continuing school or moving into young adulthood, that you were able to cope with them in a kind of resilient manner or did they kind of knock you for six? Not, they not me for six. Did they? Um, the, the biggest moment adversity came to me when I was a kid and I went to boarding school because my mum and dad were so terrified that I wouldn't be able to pass the common entrance. Yeah. Because, you know, when it's 13, you do the common entrance, you move on. So they moved me to boarding school, which was where I grew up in Yorkshire. And that what that acted like the catalyst for uh, all the the manifesting problems that were just starting within me. So I went to boarding school. I was very isolated. Um I soon started to go off the rails. You know, if I didn't really have a lot of confidence in myself and I knew I'd known being a sensitive child that in order to survive, I needed to hide myself because mm. the world couldn't give me the emotional things that I needed. You no, know, my emotional needs weren't met in the outside world. So it's like, keep it under hidden, but I still felt everything. Of course. And being and boarding school was an incredibly masculine, cold, sterile environment. You know, this was a place where they the, the, the pinnacle of achievement was to run a 10-mile run through ice-cold hills at the end of your time there. And I was like, yay, that sounds great. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you remember any affection or talking about emotions or like pastoral support, as they might refer to it now? There, no. Really? Not. Like, so you've got this. Mm, go ahead. Uh, my mum and dad were, were kind of quite good with that, but it was when they weren't, when these needs weren't met in schools that they didn't really know how to deal with that. But there was no pastoral care in that in that school. It was hideous in almost every single way it could be. So, how do you think that has impacted you in your adult life? <sighs> I think it impacted me up to a point of hiding myself, of learning how to survive. Wear the mask. I'll adapting. You know, it's like I will hide myself so I don't have to show myself because in for a good few years after I left boarding school, I was still in boarding school. You know, I perceived adult men around me as being people in boarding school and I would react I see. in the same way. I'd be like, I'm not going to show them this. I'm definitely not going to show them that I'm a bit odd. Uh, I'm a bit weird and my humor's a bit strange because they will bully me. I will be singled out by, and you know, since I was at school when I was seven, adults would bully me as well. You know, mm. it would be, they would single me out as being an odd child and they would bully me and make me feel like I was uh, a retard. That's, that's worthless. What, yeah, worthless, very strange. You know, what an odd, horrible little boy that is, you know. And this was just a kid who just wanted to love. That's all I wanted to do. But I just didn't get that. And then I didn't get it in boarding school. And I was not sport-minded, but yet they funneled me. Into there was this one experience, which was before boarding school, yeah. that just up and I was seven years old. I was in goal and this guy, he did not like me. He hated me for <laughs> whatever reason. And he just got the whole team just to kick footballs at my head for like an hour. And I was in tears and I was crying, but he just kept, it was really, really kind of really violent and really aggressive in a lot of ways. And those kind of experiences just 
tended to happen to me. So I kind of expected it from, I, I saw men who were in positions of control as enemies and therefore I hid myself. So you've just got to be sort of hypervigilant, as a therapist might put it, or on guard at all times and not show any of your real stuff, which is what you were talking about at the beginning, which you do so well now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so at what stage did you start, because did you start turning to substances of any kind to, to escape or talk us through that bit? Uh, so it was always substances and self-harm. Okay. The, the uh, self-harm started um, in when I was around eight, where I would get blisters, uh, you know, like ulcers on my tongue, and then I'd take them off with uh, nail clippers. You know, that was quite an intense experience for an eight-year-old boy to do, but that's what I thought, that's what I thought a man would do. That's the kind of the warped sense oh. of, of taking on pain and being able to handle pain. I used to call it battle damage. You know, I'd be like, I'm battle damage, so I can carry on. Um, and then in boarding school, I think after I internalized all these feelings, they had to come out somewhere. And booze, oh my God, booze was amazing. It just helped calm it all. It yeah. made sense. I felt relaxed. I didn't feel in fear. I felt limitless. I felt bold. And it was a bit naughty. So it's like, hang on. It's all this. I feel great. <sighs> this can be my identity. I can be that guy. I feel good with that. That feels naughty, rebellious. This feels like the voice that I need to have that I haven't had. So I just threw myself into that. But, you know, and I, I stole from, from, I was just a little criminal. You know, I break into houses, I'd steal their booze. Um, Specifically for the booze. Yeah. And, and for just the kind of excitement of it all, you know, my, my, I really needed to clasp onto an identity which would also help me express all the angst that I was feeling and all the shit that I was holding inside. And also on another level, it was like, I'm not sensitive because look mm. at this. Yeah. I'm a thief. Like, and I still tear my tongue apart with toe clippers. You know, it's like, I'm not sensitive. I don't feel emotion. I'm a criminal. That's where I went to. That was, that was my high. And it was one after I had my first drink of alcohol, I was like, right, how do I, how do I make this a constant in my life? And I made a very conscious decision that I would do whatever it took to get that feeling at that age. And so I did that. So just, um, I mean, it's such a striking image, the, the toenail clippers and, you know, the pain element and the total overcompensation, right? If, if I can't survive in the world and I get bullied and I have pain reinforced, if I'm my, my sensitive self, uh, then obviously I need to go to the other extreme in order to to belong and to fit in or create some kind of identity. Um, and I totally identify with the the first time that you drink, right? Uh, and or the first time that you drink properly, and you almost there's this illusion that you are now this is who I'm meant to be. Yes. Like I am now myself. Yes. I'm like this is the person who's been waiting to like break out, who's like chilled, bit funny, <laughs> life of the party, knows how to flirt. Um, you know, we'll get up and dance. We'll like, just be, just be involved, like be seen. I think that's the thing that I tried to do. Like my whole life was I played invisible. So I was raised in a religious cult. Right. And so uh, my brother would get punished mercilessly uh, in front of me. And, and my survival mechanism was to just shut up and just go below the radar uh, and to mask the, the, uh, you know, endless anxiety uh, with, you know, deep, deep down and this feeling of not fitting in or not being good enough. 
Not that I could put any of those words on the situation, right? It was just like, survive, 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 right? And um, drinking just gave me a sense of weird meaning. I know that sounds weird, but it was just like, oh, I can't, this is how, this must be how other people feel all yes. the time. That was my assumption. Yeah, yeah Little bastards, right? <laughs> absolutely. It's like, I have my golden elixir which is going to allow me to fit in and everything will make sense now. Absolutely. And so you chase the illusion of the fitting in or the finding the identity and it feels magical for a little while. It feels possible. And then of course, as we both know, over time, the cracks begin to show um, or it begins doing less, it, it, the, the, the feeling shorter. Um, we, we chase it and it doesn't quite magically give us that hit. So we've got to pursue more. Um, we get into dangerous situations. Um, I mean, how long were you in active addiction? How did it progress? Um, what was the impact, I guess, on, on your relationships and your life? Loaded question, that one. It's <laughs> a great word. As you were talking now, I was like, oh my God, it's so, that's so right. You know, I haven't spoken to a fellow addict in Britain for a while. And it's just all the, you, you were hitting all the greats, Petra. Like, ah, oh, is that? greatest hits yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) um man yeah so my i burnt out pretty quickly i was 10 years okay addiction so uh i started full-on and um it impacted it was very very similar to your to your you know your story i i thought ah this this is what i need i fit in finally that void of angst and fear is just gone ah what can i do yeah I can do all of this like <clears throat> um so yeah it was it was all right for a bit i got expelled from boarding school because of food. <laughs> that was a problem for me I, was yeah. like, I got put into um i got taken straight to a <clears throat> sorry i've got something in my throat <clears throat> i got i suppose it's it's not sectioning because i was i was 14 but i got taken into an inpatient psychiatric ward because of my behavior um i made up like a lot of stuff that was going on there was some stuff that was going on i was like this and they're like this boy is not okay so i was an impatient for a long time but what Uh, you're saying some of it was real and some of it you embellished in order to get out of boarding school just just to get the fuck out of boarding school oh fascinating yeah i just you know and i'm like there were a lot of things going wrong inside my head but some sure, of them were sure. a little bit more embellished sure. so but you were doing the self-harm and you were you, if you had the depersonalization or the the criminal behavior there's a little yeah. bit of a list there of you know there was enough you need help yeah <laughs> there was enough there yeah um so i went there and then i went to sort of secondary school and that's when i found you know cannabis and then alcohol was part of that and i would just drink you know i'd do whatever i could. and it was kind of okay for a bit it was kind of yeah. all right and then i got really into smoking weed and it was the same thing Petra. it was like oh this makes me feel amazing i'm going to do whatever it takes and booze was just always there as a part of it and obviously i needed money so i got a job uh, i i would get fired from jobs yeah. endlessly because mm-hmm. I was just a liability and I can laugh about it now but fuck me like, <laughs> never have been put in a kitchen to do a job that's knives just, yeah maybe not knives with everything that was like oh it's just a, a nightmare and then and then the drinking you know really took off and my parents were at a loss of what to do with me because I was stealing thousands of pounds from them you know mm. like checks frauding them 
this precipitated the whole sort of one, well, my first rock bottom. And kind of things got all right for a bit. And then when I was sort of 23, massively kicked off again. And that was like the dark, one of the darkest times of my life where I was just drinking, taking cocaine, taking ecstasy and smoking weed. And I just turned into a monster. That was like the first time where I punched my parents. When I attacked my parents, um, there was one, one story that I tell sometimes and it's a painful memory for me. I was like, I'm a big guy. So I'm like six foot three. You are, yeah. <laughs> do losing a bit of weight whatever anyway at that time i was so emaciated there was a and i and i've been kicked out of home so i was living on the streets you know i was just i was homeless for, for a matter of time and i was so alone that i went back to my parents house and there was like a 30 centimeter by 30 centimeter window in the basement and i kicked that through and i managed to crawl through it that's how thin i was right I went into the basement and I just slept on that cold floor and just kind of in this weird way that I needed to be close to my parents, that I needed that kind of love, that I needed them to know that I was in pain and that I couldn't do this on my own and to let all those masks just fall and to say, mum, dad, I'm in fucking trouble. I just want to hug. I just want to feel your skin, you know, that kind of thing. But I couldn't tell them. No. I was so ashamed and I was so filled with guilt for all the horrible shit that I had taken them through. That, that in my, my addicted, I, I use the word warped kind of way, that was the only thing that I could do. And that was, as I say, that was incredibly dark and it only, only really got darker. And it got to the point where, where I'd moved to London. I was so, I, I, had a, I had a girlfriend, she left, and that just precipitated what I call the end. Because my self-harm just went through the roof. You know, I was taking a, I'm going to trigger warnings. Yeah, for anyone. thank you. That, yeah. Um, I took a soldering iron and I sat down and I cut through like the fat of my arm for about six hours, creating a tattoo, you know, gave myself beyond third degree burns because I thought that was what, what, what you did. I, I made knives so I could heat them up and stab myself. You know, I was walking across Hammersmith Bridge and I, I used to give my, paper cuts between my toes and fill my shoes with lemon juice and salt so that I can in some way elevate myself mm. up to this point of incredible pain that I could feel as an equal with those people who would walk around me because I felt so detached from that you know I so, so, the, so the pain would almost connect you in a weird way yeah. to reality yeah absolutely that was I felt so ashamed of myself that if I saw someone on the street, I was convinced that they would see the shame that I was so desperately trying to hide. And but, the then, but then they wouldn't. And then I imagine. And then it's like, you're almost, you want people to see you, but equally you hide. It's this weird doing both because of the, the disappointment that people don't see you just adds to the loneliness, right? Absolutely. Mm. And uh, it's this, yeah, this weird kind of way that, that I was operating, you know, and they absolutely wouldn't have seen the shame and the guilt. I was just trying to handle it. Well, you were torturing yourself with it is what I'm hearing. Yeah, Absolutely torturing yourself with it. And then I guess recovery or any other way of life. Like, like imagine if yourself now had talked to that guy uh, as he was walking on the bridge and said, hey, all the wanky stuff you said at the beginning, right? <laughs> and said, you are the most powerful person uh, in the world. You don't know your power. Let's have a powerful conversation, right? <laughs> um, in the sense that you you wouldn't have known what to do with it, I imagine. You wouldn't have been able to hear. I don't know. You look a lot like me. 
This is weird. <laughs> I'm going to go this one. Bye, bye, bye. Hey, but, what did I smoke, man? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny you say that. It's like, <laughs> I thought, and the reason why we describe our conversations as having powerful conversations is because we've been to a place where we've seen it at its worst. Yeah. And we need to communicate very quickly to someone without going through our entire backstory and the context of why we believe that. So that's why we get these, you know, powerful conversations at a time, transformation, because we know and we need to communicate that as quickly as possible to someone. And and then um, I'm sort of jumping ahead and I'll go back again in a minute. But do you think in order to have the powerful conversations at the level that we do, right, and have the impact that we have, do you think it's directly correlated to how shit it was for a little while there? Okay. Like, do we, did we need that kind of darkness in order to it, like impact, like have the reverse? I do. I think to, to hold a powerful space, you need to have traveled the full spectrum. Like my sister-in-law always says, I, I give you so much respect, Henry. I'm like, why? Well, you, you've had the bus and you got the ticket to crazy town, but you came back. And it's like, you need someone to have a powerful conversation. You need someone who has been to their darkest point so that when you go to your darkest point, they will not falter on you and they will be able to hold that space with you. That's where the power comes in because people can encounter vulnerability and they won't know how to hold it. And if you're in a space where someone doesn't know how to hold your vulnerability, it's going to send you the same message that I got when I was a kid was that my vulnerability was not okay and it must be hidden. And you'll feel it's that. too much. Yeah. Yeah. It's too much and it can't be handled. Um, exactly. And so you go, oh, fuck, I tested that out. Um, let me pull it right back in. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, and I, I think, you know, darkness can be made there can be meaning created from it and that's why i rate people like you petra you know who are who have been to the dark place but you're still fucking here and you're making meaning from it you know i don't hear you talk about self-pity i don't hear you talk about blame it was you what you did and what the fuck you're doing about it now i recently um i recently went through a breakup and um uh my my friend was like let's just do nothing for New Year's and let's just be depressed and let's just like, let's just like isolate. Like that's essentially what she was saying. And I text her and I just went, uh, not if I can help it. I'm, I'm, I'm like checking, like in touch with people. And she went, you're so resilient. How have you moved that around so quickly? And it's just life. Like I know what the pity party and the victimhood feels like. I've spent uh, time there. Time, time, time. Uh, yeah degrees in that you know what I yeah mean? oh yeah exactly i've got degrees in shame isolation and pity party victimhood um and i re refuse like i choose to not go there anymore i choose That's to true. look at fulfillment and growth right um so i'm curious about your recovery journey and you know was there a particular rock bottom that that was the thing or that prompted was the next catalyst moment for you to go fuck i've got to go to rehab or, or, or just begin, you know, changing things. Talk us through that. But I, it was very much out of my hands. Like I was, man, I don't, to all intents and purposes, people look at me, I, I've left the building, you know, um, I, there's no other, you know, I was talking to, I, I don't remember the conversations I was having with my mum, but when she re repeats them back to me, I was like, Jesus, like, I just was not there. You know, I was in a pit of filth, uh, living, just unable to clean, puke, Bonnet, shit, 
blood, self-harm, all of that. It was horrific. And it got very much taken out of my hands. They phoned up a social worker that said he's not okay. My sister-in-law essentially came in. She's a psychotherapist. She was like, okay, listen, he needs to be put under some kind of, I don't think it was a section. My girlfriend, who's a mental health nurse, says, Henry, always be super clear about this because I still need to get clarification. But I got taken to uh, an acute ward, which was a detox ward, but it was also a kind of acute mental health ward taken, just removed from booze. I do cool. find it fascinating that both of your parents are in education, I think. Uh, your sister's a psychotherapist. Obviously, your now girlfriend's a, a mental health nurse, but... Um, that, that like people in your immediate family are uh, seem to be really uh, developed, really smart, really um, in the helping type professions, right? And so it almost doesn't compute. Like, like people would think, uh, and I had a re- really good parents and people who were there for me, it almost doesn't compute that you had this context growing up, but yet you went down this addictive, you know, mental health kind of path. I don't know. Well, I think it's, I think I was, born with those things you know I don't think they were created because I had some experiences or or a lack of like I was born an addict and I was born with a particular mental health makeup and my my parents as I said before my parents had very specific tools which they could use to help me but I was just way out of their comfort zone way out of any contextual experience that they've had and yeah you're right it's it is kind of a bit funny but I think it shows the severity of how far I got and how quickly I went there. And I, and I guess I say it to, to, to kind of challenge any judgment that people have around the context, because people do. They're like, oh, that happened and therefore. And it's like, well, yes, things do, do affect us, but also there is something about our chemistry and our mental makeup. Uh, yeah. that, you know, because none of my siblings are addicts. Um, uh, my biological father probably is, but I didn't grow up with him. So there's something genetic rather than nurture. Anyway, we could do a whole podcast on that. So you get taken, uh, not sectioned, but taken in some way, taken in some way to a rehab. Uh, oh, it was a, a mental health. Oh, ward. a mental health ward. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so then, what happened? Talk us through that bit. And uh, I stayed there for two months, you know, um, and then I got taken to a twelve-step rehab, which I owe my life to. Like, honest to God, I didn't know anything about twelve steps. I did the twelve steps while I was there. Um, yeah. I was there for three months. And then it came up to the funding for the next three months, which was pretty rare. And I just said to him, it's like, listen, if I leave this rehab, I'm going to use. I just know that I'm going to use. I don't feel that I'm able to make the decisions yet. Please keep me in here. Please. No, this is my life. Wow. I got the, the extra three months. So I did six months residential in this rehab. And I, my God, like I faced everything in there. And I just did not stop. And I discovered this um it's funny, this, where the self-harm would propel me towards physically damaging situations, that kind of flipped a little bit. So I became drawn to emotional, potentially emotionally stressful situations. That was how I tuned my warrior to work with me and for me, to be bold. And that served me. My, my therapist always said to me, Henry, you're like uh, wringing water out of a cloth. You just literally won't stop until the very last bit of shame and guilt is out there. I'm like, fuck yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Look, well, because if you know that there's a way that you can get to the bottom of it, like I, I was having therapy every other week and then I'm like, oh, there's this trauma piece that I just need to, like I haven't faced up to yet. So I like 
piled on some trauma therapy on top of what I was doing, obviously being transparent, but I was like, obviously it makes sense to just delve into that at the same time while building a business and doing everything else. Do you know what I mean? Um, Yeah. yeah, there's like, because, because I think we can see the other side of that hard work. And so, and I, I don't know, there's a little bit of fear as well of, you know, if I don't put the work in, I know where I can get to, I know how bad it gets. Isn't there a bit of that as well? Absolutely. It's very, it's a very realist point of view. It's like, I've been to crazy town. Yeah. <laughs> like if I don't do this, then there's the risk that I'll just pick up that ticket again and go back. And I don't want to go back there. I actually quite, like they used to say, the good news is that your feelings come back. So the bad news is that your feelings will come back. Like all of that. And I just like, as long as there's work to do, then I can feel like I'm making steps forward. And there is no small like vulnerability. Okay. Like, vulnerability it takes courage to face yourself and to be vulnerable where you don't know the outcome of a situation especially when you're in a group vulnerability is just not weakness we need to get rid of this idea that it's weakness because it's not it's courageous by its very definition of being courageous it is not a weakness and that is what built me this this courage i built up a sense of self being like i am courageous and when i'm courageous I get success. I, it works. The success, which I felt I was always beyond my reach, and I was kind of a little bit afraid of when I got vulnerable and I owned my own shit and I said how I really felt and it was okay. I hold that courage now. Like, that is the one thing that I have that has helped me move forward more consistently than anything else. So you obviously practiced that loads in six months of um, sort of a, a 12-step rehab. Um, and there's something powerful about being in groups and sharing and particularly I imagine a man with other men in the group to uh, be sharing that sort of level of vulnerability. There's so many stigmas and like I met everyone in boarding school within that room. Did you? you? Like uh, the type of person. Oh I see. Oh I see. You like had to face up to. Yeah, and all the lad lads, all the kind of shit which just used to screw me over because I could never be like them. And I kind of thought if I was, then everything I'd fit in. I met all of them and it was agonizing and horrible. And But my God, it galvanized me, you know? And I, I think s- I got... Mm, go ahead. I think I got really vulnerable around the real guilt and the shame. Like, so that helped me and that was an appropriate place to do it. So I laid the foundation of the hardcore vulnerability. And then when I left rehab, I was able to play around with like, right, how, how much vulnerability is maybe not appropriate in this situation? When I went to uni and this was like first time at uni, second time at uni, first time was complete fucking disaster. Uh, The second time I went, you know, I used to tell people that, oh yeah. I was, I was homeless, you know, and all this, I divulge all this information because I still wasn't quite secure in myself, maintain mm. my own identity. Um, and of course, you know, these were, I was a mature student. These guys were 18. They had no fucking idea of the context of all that. I just made me seem like empty, weird Henry words, you know, it's like, and that made me feel isolated. You mm. know, so I've, I've always been learning of like vulnerability. When is it appropriate? When is it not appropriate? That's a super powerful distinction uh, because we talk about vulnerability a lot and, um, you know, there's a misconception that it's just about spilling your guts at every opportunity to every single person. Like, how do you, um, 
how do you categorize or how do you make the decision for you personally about when it's appropriate and when it isn't? Like what, what, is, what do the conditions need to be like in order for it to be safe or, or appropriate to be vulnerable? I mean, it has to be safe. You've got to do it. I will only be vulnerable if it's in a safe environment. And if it's something that, say, within this podcast, I've been vulnerable because I'm quite used to talking about these things. But I don't know how you're going to react, Petra. You know, sure. I don't have any control over how your audience are going to react. But mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, this is safe. I know enough about myself to say this and be okay with what I'm saying. It's not a risk to me, so it shouldn't be a risk to anyone else. Um, if I'm within a relationship with my girlfriend and I have to be vulnerable, I will tell her first. You know, I want to be vulnerable right now. I need to be hurt. And she'll be like, Okay. Does that, do you guys, is that almost like code? Does she know, uh, not code, but does does she know what that means as far as what her role then is within that? Because sometimes people want to fix, right? Especially in, or they don't know, you know, there's a fear of how they might handle someone else's vulnerability. Yeah, that is a massive problem with a lot of men in relationships and getting vulnerable. That, that's a whole nother podcast. But it is it is kind of code light. And almost now, we, we're so used to communicating with each other that it doesn't need to be said. But sure. you know, if, if I'm about to divulge something that potentially I feel quite sensitive around, then I need to let her know that that is what I'm going to do. So then she can be like, okay, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to see you and you know, and honor you for what you're doing, which is showing me part of yourself that you haven't shown anyone else. So, so rather than being passive, it's taking responsibility for um, helping set up the conditions that allow you to be vulnerable. And people often think this is kind of this weird way to go, but you're talking about you, you know, the most precious part of you that potentially you haven't shared with anyone. So you need to start having these, I'm saying you. It's a very- I do, yes, preach. Tell yes. me, <laughs> I do. But to do it, like I needed to make sure that the setting was safe. I need to make sure that, like, the great example of being vulnerable is people go out drinking, you go out drinking, you let your guard down, you tell someone something which you've been holding on for ages. Next morning, you're like, shit, what did I do? <laughs> that is a perfect example of being vulnerable in an inappropriate situation. You know, sure. you need to lay the groundwork and you need to let people know that you, that you need to be heard within this. And then the flip side is true, that it can be uh, promoting vulnerability in the world to really listen, to actively listen and create safe spaces, which we both do in the work that we do, um, so that other people feel like get the experience of what it's like to have a safe space and how do you think about the boundaries, how do you um, reflect on yourself and and, and then that process of a powerful conversation allows them to realize the benefit of it in order to put those things in place in their life. Yeah, absolutely. Once they can kind of flip it and see what they did, how it worked, what situation was in, they can recognize. What I do a lot in my coaching is that people will be vulnerable and they won't even know they're being vulnerable. You know, be like, right. you name it. Is, do you know what you did right there? You were being very vulnerable with me. What was the difference between that and, say, doing that outside of this conversation? And they'd be like, well, you know, I feel safer i feel like you're not going to judge me I'm like, okay let's work with that how do we recreate this for you outside of this conversation so that people can start to be vulnerable and it, it always starts really small it's like I, I don't tell people how i feel what's stopping you it's like well judgment all, all this kind of thing and it by and large it comes down to how harshly they're judging themselves absolutely 
the self-critical voice, right? Yeah. And they are terrified. It's that shame thing that they'll, that when they say it, other people will see what they've been hiding. So in the spirit of vulnerability, uh, you, you sound like you've cracked the code and you've figured life out and you've, you're doing it all excellently. <laughs> um, but we, we both know that we still have demons hey, and we still you, have to work yeah. on this stuff. Um, oh. So my question to you is, currently, present day, what, are, what is one or two of the biggest challenges that you're facing internally or uh, uh, you know, in your own self-development? Fear. There's a big, there's a lot of fear going on. Um, I've been facing this whole war, right? I've been so uncomfortable in the last six months. It's been like sleeping in a bed of needles every day. It's been horrible (laughs) because I, I, I got a new job. It's a big position. Um, the imposter syndrome is like through the roof. Like, who the fuck do you think you are, Henry? Like, and who the fuck do they think you are? What what have you been telling them, Henry? <laughs> <laughs> what have you been saying? Um, and yeah, so the imposter syndrome, the fear of like stepping into like my and my friend is like, you're magnificent. I'm like, do you know what? That's that's exactly what it is. I'm terrified of stepping into like what it might mean if I was operating at my very best without fear because fear is resistance to change and that's exactly where I've been and I've just been pushing it a bit and it it has knocked me for six like I have had in fact over this last year I have cried more times I have had more severe depressive episodes than I have had in like the last sort of five out of ten years sobriety it's been horrible but I have carried on and there have been times when I wish that I could just die, but I did not. And in those kind of times, it's really important to know that everyone needs a break. You know, everyone needs a break. So I just take myself off, got a little place in Norfolk, I go and hug my dog for a week. Lovely, know? lovely. And and thank you for that because I, I really hope that people understand the lifelong journey that is personal development, and that once you get to one sort of plateau of like, yay, I'm winning. <laughs> conversations are great and I've, I've had this little bit of success it's like you, you if you stall right you sort of go backwards and so then it's going if we want to live to our fullest potential and create the impact that we were meant to create in the world we've got to do what you're doing which is sometimes do it afraid that whole Brené Brown thing of like sometimes you just got to do it afraid and I tell myself that when I've got like a bigger audience or a bigger thing to do I'm like fear is healthy. I've just got to do it afraid, right? Um, But what you begin to do is build up an evidence base of all the times that you didn't die as far as fight or flight, right? You didn't die. uh, You showed up and maybe it wasn't perfect, but you learned from it. You impacted a life and circling right back to what you said at the beginning, it's it's about service. So it, it isn't about all the high fives and the accolades and the perfection. It's about service. It's about giving back. I mean, what a fucking privileged place for me and you to be in, to be able to give to fucking anyone after we took and drained people, society, friendships, my own children, my siblings, do you know what I mean? Of, of their resources in the most, like I put negativity out into the world for a good number of years. Um, mm. and, and rather being a, than being ashamed of that, I, I feel like my role now is to repair that through giving back in other ways. Does Absolutely. that make sense? Absolutely. It's the it's a natural solution to having taken so much is to then give out unconditionally. Give out unconditionally. I love that. 
So finally, Henry, what advice might you give to somebody who, who is at the beginning stages of their journey? So perhaps they have been in addiction, but perhaps they've had some other adversity uh, and they've got lots of things to blame. Like you had the bullying and the boarding school and the things that you could blame, right? What might be the, I don't know, the first step that they could take to getting them on the path of, of purpose, fulfillment uh, and courage? Man, the pressure to come up with one single most powerful sentence. <laughs> the most powerful thing. <laughs> come on, Henry. Dig deep, but uh, obviously that's not going to happen. Well, you know it's little things, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd say, like, there are going to be shit days. There are going to be shit days. Like, it's life. And consistently, when you get on this journey, oh, it can be a real drain. But don't give up. You don't have to. You've made a choice that you're going to move forward. And that's all you have to do. And it's okay to not be okay. That was wise. You got there, Henry. Yes. It's okay to not be okay. Uh, and I love that. Just show, just show up anyway. Um, yeah. Henry, Henry, thank you so much for your time, your vulnerability. Obviously, we're going to have you on again. We've got to talk through masculinity in a much deeper mm. way and some of the work that you do. But for now, where can people find you if they want to get in touch? Best place to go is henryjohnson.org where you can find out about all the fun little things I do. Um, I'm also really active on Facebook. Come find me at Henry Johnston. There's a, I, it's a black and white picture. I look like a model. I look fabulous. Ooh. I don't look like that in real life. But hey, <laughs> come find me. I love having conversations. Just wonder if you heard something on the podcast you'd like to hear more about, just, you know, pop along. And if you're in London, let's meet up for a coffee. I'll buy you lunch. Sounds amazing. Ooh, be a bit away. You might have a few uh, people coming to you for that. Careful. Uh, I'm, I might take you up on that one. Um, we'll add all of that into the show notes. Henry, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. An absolute pleasure. Thank you, Petra. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through petrabelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.